Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, we are... Continuing our study now in the Gospel of Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 32. And if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back. Feel free to stand up, grab one of those. That's our gift to you. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, let me do a review. We are studying gospels, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, specifically uh, the Sermon on the Mount here. And for the past several weeks, we've, we've dealt with issues that are quite sensitive. These are personal topics that can be uncomfortable to discuss in group settings, especially in a church. However, Jesus preached on them, and as his disciples, it really is our responsibility to, to study them as well. We've discussed anger in verses 21 through 26. And then for the past two weeks, we've learned why committing the sin of adultery is the fastest way to ruin your life in verses 27 through 30. And it's no surprise now that in verses 31 through 32, really, Jesus presses into our hearts even further, and he moves from the subject of adultery into divorce. So there we have it, right? We got anger and adultery and a divorce. It's like this trifecta of sermon topics that nobody wants to talk about. And yet Jesus does. A couple key points from last week. We said, number one, we said that sex is the exclusive activity that defines the marriage relationship. No other relationship involves sexual oneness. Key point number two we said that our sexual sin is not a private matter. It is a public testimony that reveals the condition of our heart. So why is our private sin a public matter? Numbers 32:23 says it well. Your sin will find you out. And so we're not going to get away with anything, especially when it comes to adultery. Number three, we talked about the cause of lust, and we said that the cause of lust is not beautiful people, but it's a sinful response to those beautiful people. It's, if we think about it, it's pretty absurd for us to blame God or blame others for my lack of self-control in this area. And number four from last week, we said that lust is a radical problem that requires a radical solution. So we had Jesus' hyperbolic teaching, right, of gouging out eyes and cutting off limbs, and that illustrates how we are to take drastic action in our own lives to protect ourselves from lust. And we know that Jesus was using hyperbole there to convey his message because mutilation, physical mutilation, will not cleanse our heart. So summarizing from last Sunday, we can say this, when God says, don't commit adultery. He's saying, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. 
I love you too much for you to go through that. God created sex. Therefore, God protects it in his word and through his word. God has authority to regulate it, punish those who rebel against it, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. I mean, think of, think of adultery as a raging fire that will burn your house down. But what if you've got a raging fire in the same home, but it's contained in a fireplace? See, that's, that's marriage. God doesn't regulate sex because he wants to rob us of any fun. He wants to protect us and give us a divine joy that, that only comes through marriage. So as Christians, we don't only want to be monogamous, we want to be pure, and we want to be pure in heart. So that's all a review from last week, and today Jesus teaches on another vital element when it comes to marriage. People love to ask questions like, you know, what, what's the biggest problem in marriage? There are many answers to that question. Some people say money. Money can be a problem. Sex, children, in-laws, <laughs> communication issues. But see, those, are, those symptoms, uh, those, are, those answers are only symptoms of the root problem. Because the two most significant causes of marital strife are the husband and the wife. The root problem in marriage is us. See, if we don't own the fact that I'm the problem in my marriage, I will inherently blame everyone and everything else except me. We've all heard the divorce rate. It's around 50% for first-time marriages. Second-time marriages, around 67%. And third marriages, around 75%. We've also heard that those percentages are pretty, pretty much close to to the, to the same inside the church. And whether that's true or not, we've all been impacted by divorce. Divorce is tragic. It devastates families, it scars children, it, it paints a blot on society. But the foremost tragedy of divorce is that it violates God. It violates His Word. Many of us know what the culture thinks about divorce. And of course, we've got our own opinions when it comes to divorce. But what does God have to say about divorce? Marriage, divorce, remarriage is our topic this morning. So what does all that mean for you? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. All right, let's dive right in here to the deep end of the pool. Verse 31, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. So Jesus continues his, his mode of teaching here by giving us really a shortened version of the halakha. Uh, we've seen this over and over the last couple of weeks. The halakha 
is all, all the oral traditions that the Jews placed above the authority of Scripture. It really was a false system of religion that was attainable. Uh, it really focused on a works-based religion. So Jesus says in the, in the past couple Sundays, he said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in verse 31, he gives us a shortened version of that. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife. The, the Greek word divorce there is apoluo. It's defined as a physical dismissal. It just means to leave. And last week when teaching about adultery, we said that to understand the sinfulness of adultery, we must first understand the mystery of marriage. So we went back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we learned several mysteries of marriage. We discussed the physical element. We also talked about the spiritual component of marriage. And through our study, we, we also learned this. One of the, the last key points was that marriage is not only a physical union, but it's a spiritual reality. And today we have a similar issue. If we want to understand what God is saying about divorce, we must first understand another facet of marriage. So once again, we got to go back to the beginning. We got to go to that same passage from last week. We got to keep digging for God's truth as if it were gold. So back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 this morning. The creation narrative. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to, to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and he closed the flesh at that place. Quick review, that, that word Adam, or that word man, is not Adam. It's Adam. It's not a guy named Adam. Uh, it is Adam. He is somehow, some way, a person who represents all of mankind. We talked about the rib. The Hebrew word there is selah. It's translated as either a rib or a side or even the side chamber. Your side chamber is your collarbone all the way down to your, your hip. So is it possible that God didn't just take one single rib from the woman, but he literally, or from, from Adam, but he literally cracked, cracked him wide open? Genesis 2.22 then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man, and he, he took that part of the man, and he made her, made that into a woman. And then he brought her to the man. So we got the Lord now bringing the woman to the man, and this presumes that there must be some distance between the two. So here's the scene. We've got God as the father. He's now bringing a woman, his daughter, to be introduced and given away to a man. Verse 23, the man said, he goes, wow, this one, this one at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this one is going to be called woman. She was taken from man. That word woman there is isha, right? Man is Ish. So we got Ish and Ishah. Verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So why does a man, why does Ish, the Hebrew word there for man, why does Ish bond with his wife? Well, because she was taken from man in verse 23. They, they were designed for oneness. So somehow they were one from the beginning. That word bond there is debak. 
And it means to cling, to cleave. The, the picture here is that we are to keep close, to fasten its grip, to hold fast. We are to join together. This is good. We need to remain steadfast. We, we need to stay and we need to stay close. We need to stick together. Uh, bond, it, it's an active verb. It, it means that there's no chronological time frame here. This is a continuous bond. So that brings us to key point number one. There is no expiration date on marriage. There's no expiration date on marriage. God established marriage before the first city was ever built. Before any laws were, were penned, before any government formed, there was marriage. See, God, marriage was God's design from the very beginning. Mankind doesn't have the right to break it, to modify it, to redefine it, because marriage is God's institution. So, from the beginning, God intended a lifelong commitment to monogamous marriage. Let's look at verse 24. This is why a man, Ish, leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, Isha, and they become one flesh. So in marriage, a man and a woman are so closely joined together that they become one, which involves spiritual and physical oneness. However, if we turn the page from, from Genesis chapter 2 to, to uh, chapter 3, we're going to learn here how Adam and Eve sinned which has significant consequences on God's design of marriage. Quick background here. Eve is confronted with, with Satan in the form of a talking snake. All right? That's a different sermon for another day. But Satan tempts Eve to eat this fruit that she knows is forbidden. She eats the fruit. She gives some of that fruit to her husband. Their eyes were opened. They get into this huge fight. They're now hiding within the trees of the Garden of Eden. And God shows up. Adam and Eve, they blame everyone and everything for their own rebellion. They don't take responsibility for their own actions. And in verse 16, God said to the woman, he said, your desire will be for your husband. And yet he's going to rule over you. So in verse 16, we see how sin immediately perverts the marriage relationship. See, before the fall, the wife's desire for her husband was to help him, support him, come alongside of him. God created Eve as an easer. She is an ally. She's a rescuer. She's a defender. Easer is the same word used for God who helps and saves and delivers. But now, after the fall, she desires to control the marriage. She wants, to she wants to step outside uh, her God-given role and responsibility as a helper. So let's look at the text again. Verse 16, your desire will be for your husband. Now, many men believe that this desire is sexual. It is not. The Hebrew word here is chukwa. It's the same desire that sin had for Cain in Genesis 4-7. God says to Cain, you know, Cain, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you got to rule over it. So the background to, to that Genesis passage is God accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's, and Cain is furious. 
So in other words, sin has the desire to control each one of us. And instead of ruling over sin, what we tend to do is rule over people. Which means all of us are control freaks at some level. Women have a a sinful bent towards controlling their husbands. We see that from our text. Now, gentlemen, we don't get off so easy here. If the sinful nature of a woman is to control, the sinful nature of a man is twofold. The husband either has one of two default modes, anger or neglect. We see both in Adam. We see it in the same narrative, Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, and also verse 12. If we want to know where male chauvinism and liberal feminism began, it's right here in the fall. We've got two people who are trying to control one another. We've got Ish and Ishah, husband and wife. They're thrown into the the same household. And somehow, some way, we're supposed to make life work. And we're supposed to get along. But we don't get along, do we? We're always looking out for ourselves. Which brings us back to our text today regarding divorce. So back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. So we have someone in the marriage who is intentionally breaking God's design for oneness. And Jesus says, you got to give a written notice. Why? Where did that come from? Where did this formal document come into play here? Well, Jesus is now pointing us back to the Old Testament. He points us back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is the first place divorce is mentioned. Let's take a look here. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. So let me give you some terminology here, make sure we're all on the same page. That, that word indecent, it, 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 it's erva, and it means, it literally means this, the nakedness of the thing. The nakedness of the thing. So it's, it's referring to our private areas, right? Divorce certificate literally means a scroll of cutting off. So when a man divorced his wife in the first century, she was cut off. She was driven away from her home and her family. Punishment comes with indescribable shame, financial bankruptcy, social trauma. Most women were forced to get remarried to survive. So the key to understanding this verse actually comes from that word indecent, the nakedness of the thing. And that's why Jesus continues here in verse 32. He expands. He provides some commentary. He says this, But I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. (laughs) So Jesus just, just said something that we don't like. We don't take this very seriously, do we? Jesus' whole point is that divorce leads to adultery. In fact, divorce causes multiplied forms of adultery. Jesus is stating here that a man or a woman who has no right to divorce has no right to remarry. 
Now, are we going to take Jesus' words here literally? Or is he, is he still being hyperbolic from verses 29 and 30? You know, the whole gouging out the eyes thing and cutting off a limb. Well, let's find out. If Jesus is being literal, it sounds like he's being harsh towards women. But he's not. He's teaching the law as it was given. And that's why he points us back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is God's way of protecting women. So let's look at it again. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, send her away from the house. Okay. Jesus points us back to Deuteronomy 24 because that something indecent, it had to do with marital unfaithfulness, specifically adultery, which Jesus just preached on a few minutes earlier in his sermon. So here's the issue. The Pharisees' interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 was to defend their incorrect and their superficial understanding of divorce in their eyes. So to the Pharisee, that word displeasing there, it meant that if his, if his wife burns the dinner, if she talks too loud, or if he finds someone better looking, those are all potential causes for divorce. So obviously, they took displeasing out of context. That is not what God intended. However, the context of displeasing, it does deal with the context that's in the, in the same sentence, this idea of indecency. So they ignored what God said is indecent, this whole, this whole idea of the nakedness of the thing. And in just, in, just in case we missed all this, our gospel writer Matthew here, he gives us a more thorough teaching uh, on divorce in chapter 19. So let's turn a few pages to the right here. Let's see what he, he says here. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him. And they asked, well, hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Jesus said, well, haven't you guys read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, ish and ishah? He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then? Did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Notice that word command. Why did Moses command us? Jesus says, Moses permitted you. He didn't command you to do this. He permitted you to do this. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. But it wasn't like that from the very beginning. In verse 9, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus repeats himself from the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 19. And please know, guys, nowhere in Scripture does God command divorce. It's also very dangerous to, to put words into a prophet's mouth like these Pharisees did. So why? Why does God permit divorce then? Well, 
We learned last week that the alternative to adultery was capital punishment. Adultery is so heinous to God that it's punishable by death. So, why did God have a change of heart? God's permission for divorce was simply an accommodation. It was simply a compromise of His grace for our sins. And yet, what do we do? What do we do as sinful people with God's grace? We abuse it, don't we? We take God, we take God's grace for granted. It's just part of our human nature. And that's precisely what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees used the exact verse to abuse the women that God was protecting. They turned God's grace into a legal right. The Pharisees were looking for any excuse to trade out their wives. See, they placed all the emphasis on a piece of paper. As if a piece of paper could override the institution of marriage that Almighty God has created from the beginning. So Jesus is asking in this text, why are you considering a divorce at all? See, Jesus is taking the emphasis from the divorce certificate, and he's placing it where it belongs. And that's the hardness of our hearts. Let's look at verse 8 again. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. See, verse 8 boils down to all of our marital problems into one word. People get divorced because of the hardness of our hearts. Either one spouse or both spouses. Brings us to key point number two. The hardness of the heart leads to unforgiveness, which is incompatible with the gospel. The hardness of the heart leads to unforgiveness, which is incompatible with the gospel. And that's one of the many, many reasons Jesus is so stern here. Divorce is preventable. It's preventable with a soft heart. But even with hard hearts, guys, adultery is forgivable. The Lord speaks to the prophet Malachi on this issue of divorce. God says this in Malachi 2, verse 13. He says, you know, you cover the Lord's altar with all of your tears, all this weeping, all this groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings. He doesn't accept them with pleasure. So what's going on here is the Jews, they don't understand why the Lord is not answering their prayers. I mean, they're doing all the religious things. They're they're going to church. They're praying. They're crying. They're even tithing. Doing everything that they think is right. And God says, you guys are crying out. Why why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? He says, I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows that you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her. Did the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. So what does God want from your marriage? What's he want? He wants godly children from your union. So you got to guard your heart. you got to remain loyal to the wife of your, of your youth. Verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. So once again, he says, guard your heart. And do not be unfaithful to your wife. So all that to say this, 
God plans that two people remain married until death separates them. Those who divorce and remarry, they do commit adultery. Now, I know this is a heavy lesson this morning, so let me give you some good news here before you tune out on me. This is a crucial key point. Key point number three. People commit adultery, but they don't have to live in adultery. People commit adultery, yes, but they don't have to stay there. They don't have to live in adultery. Adultery can be forgiven, just like our other sins. So yes, you may be an adulterer like me, but are you a forgiven adulterer? Dear friends, you don't have to live the rest of your life regretting the worst day of your life. You don't. And believe it or not, God loves you even on the worst day of your life. Yes, you know, we, we also may be thieves and, and blasphemers, but are you a forgiven thief? Are you a forgiven blasphemer? What's my point? Dear friends, we're all sinners. We've all missed the mark. I mean, look around you. We're, we're just a group of beggars and thieves in here this morning. We're all sinners and we all need a savior. Yes, God hates divorce. Which means that divorce is never the solution. The solution includes repentance. Uh, the solution is a change in, in our hearts. Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace and forgiveness is the solution to all of this. Let's not forget here that, that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven sinners do. Gentlemen, as husbands, we are more than willing to protect our wife from a thief that's breaking into our house. And we will die for her to keep her safe. But are we willing to die to ourselves for the sake of the marriage? We are to protect our wives as as God protects them. We are to love our bride as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love you as the church? Jesus gave his life to you. So the best way to protect your wife is to stay married. It's not to leave. We made a promise. We made a promise in front of God. We made a promise in front of family and friends on our wedding day. Remember the promise? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, oh, we like the better, don't we? We love the better, oh, wait, worse. Mm, not a big fan of the worse. For richer, oh, praise God, we love the richer. What about the poorer? Mm, in sickness, we do not like the sickness, we want the health to love and to cherish, here we go, until death, until death do us part. I mentioned earlier that the biggest problems in marriage are not money and, and sex and children and the in-laws and, and communication. The biggest problem in marriage is the husband and the wife. It's Ish and Ishah. It's you and I, right? And I want you to know that there is a very specific reason that I teach you certain Hebrew and Greek terms every single week. 
The reason is this, it, it tells a story. It tells a story that's not communicated in English. And there's a reason that I have reiterated and reiterated and reiterated that husband and wife are Ish and Ishaw this morning. What I'm about to show you is the best marriage counseling you will ever receive. If you take this lesson seriously, you will never get a divorce. Let's take a look. To get the full picture, to understand this lesson, we have to go back once again to the Hebrew. The ancient Hebrew used pictures instead of letters. So my little diagram there, you'll see on the left-hand side, that little squiggly line that's red, that's an olive. Our English letters came from Latin, Latin came from Greek, Greek came from ancient Hebrew and the Phoenicians. And you'll see there that the olive kind of sort of turns into an A, and then up on top it really looks like an A, and three or four versions later, we have a capital A. And the reason that I want to show you that is because the olive, that first letter, that first word picture, is very important to man and wife, Ish and Ishaw. So if we look at the ancient Hebrew for husband and wife, from right to left here, we've got, we've got the husband. So we see that olive at the top right. Hebrew, you read Hebrew from right to left. It's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, strange to get used to. But we see the olive, right? The olive means ox. It means strong. The picture there in the middle looks like a hand. That's a yod. It symbolizes strength, creation, and power. So it's kind of like a, a guy doing this. That's what this is. It's what the yod is. And then we have, lastly, we have that W, looks like teeth. That's a sheen. The teeth mean to devour. We look at the wife at the bottom. She also has... An olive. She is also strong, but I, I'm, I dare not call her an ox. Not going to do that. Next, she also has teeth. She has the sheen. Teeth devour. And lastly, there's the hay. There's this picture of a person with both hands raised. Hay means behold. And it symbolizes that a woman has come out of man. Genesis 2.22. It also means that she worships God. So what happens when you take away the differences between man and woman? Let's take away the yod. Let's take away that hand from the husband. Let's take away work and strength and that strong arm. This hand that is supposed to work and provide for his wife. And let's take away the hay from the wife. It represents her femininity. She was taken out of man. So what are we left with? So we've got, we've got the teeth in the husband, we've got the sheen, and then we also got the ox. You put these together, look at this. Creates a new word, it's called fire. 
And that Hebrew word for fire is esh. Ish and ishah come from fire. Esh. So what happens when you take away the differences between man and woman? Literally, we get the strong devourer. We get fire. See, fire in the Hebrew, it purifies, it destroys, doesn't it? But fire also is is used to reveal God's presence. So God is telling us that when you take away the differences between the specific roles of man and woman, ish and ishah, husband and wife, you're, you're not just left with fire. You have two raging fires in the marriage. Marriage now becomes the fire of fires. And in Hebrew, whenever you double it, whenever you double a word, it becomes the ultimate. We see this in scripture all the time. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And we see it here with husband and wife. It's the fire of fires. So when we don't celebrate the differences between men and women and their roles and their responsibilities, or maybe we choose to ignore them or we choose to obliterate them, we get the fire of fires. So in other words, when you take God out of the marriage and you ignore his words, you're going to have a complete meltdown of marriage, also known as divorce. We all know that that marriage, no marriage can survive the fire of fires. Dear friends, this explanation should also give us new insight into homosexuality, the the redefining of marriage, polygamy. But let's take a look at this from another perspective here. What do you think happens when we take the primary differences between the husband and wife and we combine them? So let's get fire out of the way. Well, now we've got, we've got yod with the husband. We've got the hay, which means behold from the wife. Once again, she's worshiping there. We, let's put these together. Look at this. When we celebrate the differences between men and women, we get a new word. It's actually a name. A new name is created. These two word pictures spell God's name. Yah. It's the shortened version of Yahweh. The Lord, I am. We sing hallelujah. Yah. Yah in this context means out of the hand comes the one to thank and to worship. Let's look at the word picture for husband again. On the far, on the far right, we see, we see the olive. He is strong. We got the yod in the middle. That's the hand in the middle. And then we have the teeth. We have the sheen. And we just learned that the olive and the sheen Placed together, those things become fire. But notice that the man's hand, his work, is in the middle of that fire, isn't it? What's God communicating here? Men work in the midst of the fire, especially when it comes to our relationship with our wife. Secondly, look at the wife. The far right, she is strong. She has the olive. The middle picture there is the sheen. She has teeth. But yet on the far left, we've got the hay. Notice here that she's not in the fire like the husband. 
She's coming out of the fire. So what's God saying? Ladies, there is a fire in the marriage that you will experience. But you can also walk out of it. You can walk through it as you worship God. All that to say this, husband and wife together with all of their differences reveal the glory of God. Out of the two word pictures here built on fire comes a word that describes the God who is a consuming fire. Together as one, men and women, husband and wife, Ish and Ishah, guys, we proclaim the one true living God. And yet, many, many times in our marriage, we find ourselves complaining to ourselves that our, our spouse is just too different from us, and we try to change them. And yet, it's God trying to change us through our spouse. Brings us to our last key point here, key point number four. Marriage was not designed for happiness, but for holiness. Marriage was not designed for happiness, but for holiness. Marriage is not the key to human happiness. God is. So if, if God is the key to human happiness, any marriage can flourish. But what about those of us who have been divorced? Although God hates divorce, there is forgiveness from it. There is. Is Romans 8.28 still in the Bible after a divorce? It is. We know that all things, including divorce, they're going to work together for the good. Look at that. For the good of those who love God. Do you love God? Have you been divorced? All things work together for the good who are called according to your purpose, to his purpose for your life. God has a purpose for your life after divorce. And believe it or not, God uses divorce to accomplish his ultimate purpose for us. It's an incredible mystery. Father in heaven, what an amazing, amazing lesson, an amazing text. Thank you for teaching us so much more about marriage. Thank you for teaching us the sanctity of marriage. Thank you for your forgiveness from our adultery and our divorce and our idolatry and our thoughts. Thank you, Lord, for the, the gift of sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that we don't have to. Father, I pray as we, we leave here today and we, we digest all of this that we continue to take the thoughts and the feelings and the shame and the guilt and, and all of these things, we, we keep taking that to you in prayer and that you would lead us and that you would guide us and you would show us uh, another deeper part of who you are in this relationship with you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.